Well, good morning. I hope that all of you have brought your running shoes with you because we are about to embark on a marathon. I see a couple of hands going. I see a couple of people saying, hey, how many of you would be excited if that's really what we were about to do? A couple of hands, ready to go. How many of you uh, are familiar with how long a marathon is? Does anybody know the length? We've got some hands. 26.2 miles, if I remember correctly. Now, visually, let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? What would that look like if we were to embark this morning on a marathon? Essentially, what we would do is, is we would leave from Faith Bible Church here in this parking lot, and just to keep it simple, we would run down to the center of Panora, and let's make it easy, we'd make a left at Casey's and start running on Highway 44. So let me just ask a quick question. I don't know about you, but I'm in fairly good shape, but I'm not in the best of shapes, and I'm not a runner. And I would say, most likely, that I would be doing all right probably through that process. How long do we have to run? A long ways. To be honest with you, we would have to run all the way to the Four Corners. How many of you are familiar where the Four Corners are? How many of you would just enjoy that last little bit of a hill as you rise up from the Raccoon River, right? Placed strategically at the perfect moment. To be honest with you, I believe that's in and around mile 20. Oh, we're not done yet. We get to the four corners and we'll go ahead and we'll take a right and we'll head south. We'll start heading down toward Adel. We get to Adel and guess what? We're almost home. If I have it calculated correctly, I think we would need to get to Adel, go to Adel High School, and probably run maybe two laps around the track, and we might finish the race. Now, why am I bringing up a marathon, and why did I talk about the Raccoon River at mile 20? This morning, what I want to do is, is I want to encourage you to recognize that the Christian walk is one of perseverance. It is one in which when we come to Christ, as glorious as that is, Behind it, we should recognize that we are engaging in a marathon of which we're called to persevere. We look through scripture and we see the word persevere in a variety of different ways. We also recognize that in our walk with Christ, there are moments where, I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do is keep on running. But yet we're called to persevere. The reason that I brought up, obviously, the Raccoon River is I have not run a marathon myself. The furthest that I've ran is 6.2 miles. I have hiked 50 miles in the Wind River over a period of days. And to be honest with you, at the end of that, I was ready just to come home and relax for a while. But my understanding from individuals that have run a marathon is that the most challenging moment of the marathon isn't the beginning of the race, and it isn't the end of the race. It's not even in the middle of the race. It's a little bit further than the middle of the race because you're too far in, but not close enough to crossing the finish line. Does that sound familiar to anybody this morning in your walk with Jesus Christ? You're too far in, but you wonder, where is the finish line? And generally speaking, in and around mile 20 is when most marathoners would say that is the most challenging time. They're close, but they're not close enough. 
And to make matters worse, I love how if we were to run this race, that convenient hill coming up out of the Raccoon River is so nicely and strategically placed to make us love the running process. I don't know about you, but if I made it, if I made it to that part, I don't think I would be singing the praises of God as I'm running up that hill. I think I would be sitting there saying, why in the world have you put this here? It's already hard enough. I don't need any more opposition to me running this race. Friends, this morning, we're going to take a look at a well-written letter in Ezra chapter 5. We're going to look at how we can respond when we face opposition. This morning's question that we're asking is, when you face opposition for your faith in Christ, how do you continue to persevere? What are some keys that will encourage us to keep moving forward? And interestingly enough, similar to what I'm talking about on this marathon, we're going to notice that the people of God are running a race to bring, essentially, God back to the people of Jerusalem. We're also going to discover that just at the right time, just at the moment where it appears that all is going to go well, that the people of God are going to finish the race, they begin to face opposition. We've also talked about the fact that they don't just face opposition for a day, they face opposition continually for over 70 years as they try to reconstruct the temple of God. Again, just to help us all, we're in the book of Ezra. We've seen the people of God who have built the temple under Solomon, who essentially went a little bit wayward, began to worship idols, and so God said, I, through the prophet Isaiah, am going to bring about a challenge to you. You are going to be conquered and removed from your land by a king, and the temple will be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar comes and does that. The people of God are then sent into exile under Nebuchadnezzar for a period of 70 years. But at the same time, through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I will bring about another king by the name of Cyrus who will conquer Nebuchadnezzar and bring you back to the land of which you will begin reconstruction on the temple. Sure enough, that happens. The people of God return. They begin rebuilding the temple, and everybody's excited because they see God moving. And then the next thing you know, a group of people who worshipped idols and sort of worshipped God come forward and say, hey, we see that you're rebuilding the temple. Let us help you. We have wisdom. We have insight. We have materials. We have money. We have bodies. We can help you. And, interestingly enough, you would think, great, let's have those people help. We've got our timeline. It's going to take six months, a year, ten years, whatever it is, to build the temple. We can cut that in half. And then what we see is the response. And it's essentially absolutely not. We, the people of God, have been called by God to build the temple by ourselves. And the reason for that is that there's the wisdom to know that the group known as the Samaritans coming to offer help to build a temple were the very ones who engaged in idol worship and began to get the people of God in trouble previously, which is what brought about Nebuchadnezzar and the conquering of God's people. And so they say no. 
And you would think that in saying no, that would be a great response on a temporal level. And that's where the opposition starts to turn up. We look and we see that the opposition will continue all the way through the building of the city. Interestingly enough, as we look at the last part of chapter 4, I've said this before, we sort of see a shot to the future, and then we return to the present. We see essentially a moment where they're discussing opposition under King Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and then we come back to King Darius, and that's where we are this morning. We see now that those that are opposing the people of God are writing a letter to ask about what is going on. And then we're going to see how the people of God respond and persevere under opposition. The first thing that I want to show you, though, before we dive into this passage, is the joy of what God will do in your life. Friends, I want to ask you a quick question. How many of you started walking with God And it's been perfect since the moment that you started walking with him and you've never had a hard day, faced opposition, or doubted what God is doing, or even quite possibly turned to God and said, where are you? I don't see where you're working. Anybody ever have that happen? Why is that? Because the reality of our life is that when we come to Jesus Christ, we're called to persevere. We're called to walk in faith. We're called to trust the promises of God amidst a world that opposes him. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. But the other thing that I want to tell you is this. How many of you have felt God finally say, that's it, I'm done with you? None of us. Because God never leaves us when we are his. And what I want to encourage you in, and what I want you to see in the book of Ezra as we begin to move to these latter chapters, is that God is continually reaching out to his people, asking them to be in relationship with him, in deep relationship with him, but always giving second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. Because God is one who has made a promise. And that is, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even though you might think or wonder that that's what I'm doing. I want to share this with you, and this is what I want you to begin to see as we look at the book of Ezra. God gives us the chance to start over. How many of you have messed things up so bad that you wonder, can I even start over? How many of you have gone through something and you're like, do I deserve a second chance, a redo? You know, I love our little guy Noah. He's at kind of the fun yet crazy age of three and a half going on four. And he's very independent. He's got a wonderful spirit, a deep loving heart. But I will tell you that there are times where he gets himself in trouble. A lot. And there are moments where both Kelly and I are pulling our hair out. But here's the deal. We sit him down. We talk to him about why he's in trouble. We tell him why there's a consequence. But we also tell him we love you and let's do a redo. Let's start over. And you know what? He does. And it's great. 
and we love it, and he's the sweetest thing for about 10 minutes, and then we're right back where we were before. But we're starting over all the time. And so what I want to tell you is that God gives us a chance to start over, to have a new beginning and a fresh start. That is not only if we don't know Jesus, we can come to him and have a new beginning and a fresh start. But that's also when we know Jesus and we struggle and we have hard times and we wonder where God is. Maybe we're not putting him first in our life. The Holy Spirit comes and prompts us and says, hey, I'm here. I love you and I'm giving you a fresh start. Let's start anew. Let's forget about what occurred there and let's move forward in fellowship with one another. Friends, when we turn back to him, he will turn to us and give us the strength that we need to persevere. You don't run this race on your own. You're not called to run this race on your own. It's not by your own strength. And so often, I see individuals who are so weak on a worldly level. And what I want to tell you is, is that's the moment when God is strongest and not to be ashamed of that. Because we know in Scripture, when I am weak, He is strong. And that's what I want to encourage you in. We look, and as we dive into this letter, we've seen that the people of God are rebuilding the temple. They're excited about what's going on. They're facing opposition, and now it's starting to boil. It's getting harder. It's getting more difficult. It's getting more challenging. And I guarantee you, That those people who were rebuilding the temple, the leaders who were designing and moving forward, some knights went home and said, why didn't we just tell the Samaritans it was okay? It would be so much easier. Why did we stay and trust God? Why did we count on his word? And they get up, and they're excited about the building, they do their thing, and the next thing you know, another letter comes that opposes the people of God. Friends, we're in Ezra 5. We're going to be looking essentially at verses 1 through 17. This is under the reign of King Darius. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered. King Cyrus came, conquered Nebuchadnezzar, and brought the people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. We then read that the opposition will continue through Darius in terms of rebuilding the temple. Well, it's been Cyrus, another king, and now Darius. About 18 years is where we're at. And this is a letter now that the people close to those people in Jerusalem are writing and saying, here's something that's going on. And we want to understand why, because we're not necessarily excited about what's happening. Tatnai's letter to Darius. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar-Bozani, 
and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of a letter that Tatnai, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates, the officials of the Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers on the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We question the elders and ask them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? We also asked them to write, uh, we, we also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. And he told them, take these articles and go, to, and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but it is not yet finished. And we're going to list all of the reasons why you need to believe us. We're going to do our own work. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to try to convince you of why you should believe us. Look at verse 17. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Don't miss that, because that becomes so important in how we respond during opposition. Friends, when you face opposition for your faith in Christ, how do you continue to persevere? The first thing that I want to show you that I think is so interesting in the start of chapter 5 is this, that God will bring about encouragement and support when we are seeking to do his will. 
We know from reading the book of Ezra that the people of God are seeking to do the Lord's will. They're seeking to honor him. Their desire is to worship him. We've seen that by the fact that they come back and they focus first on building the altar. They focus first on the worship of God and then they move to focusing on building the temple of God. Their priorities are right. They're wanting to draw closer to God. They are rejecting help from others because others were doing idol worship and they don't want to fall back into becoming blended with the world. Everything they're doing is to honor God. And of course, like I said before, when everything you're doing is to honor God, you better believe that you're going to face opposition. The enemy is going to be right behind you trying to discourage, distort, and destroy that which you are doing for him. But right at the right moment, what does God do? Brings about encouragement. It's interesting, and I've told you this before. This is why I love the book of Ezra. We see its hand in so many places. My encouragement to you, if you have time, is to take a look and see and read the book of Haggai and Zechariah because they're contemporary to what's going on here. Those two prophets are challenging but also encouraging the people of God to continue to move in the work that God has called them to do. Interestingly enough, in verse 2, we see, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them, giving them encouragement, giving them guidance, giving them wisdom. Friends, how many of you have faced opposition how many of you have been to a point where you're just about ready to break and then somehow, coincidentally, no, providentially, someone comes forward with a word from the Lord. Someone comes forward with an encouragement. A letter comes to you in your mailbox. Somebody pulls you aside and says, hey, you're doing a great job, or hey, thank you so much for what you do. Don't overlook those things. Cherish them. How many of you have been at a point where you're wondering what's going on and you're reading through scripture and all of a sudden a passage of scripture that you've passed over 10, 20, 30 times jumps out at you and it's as if God is speaking to you directly with a word of encouragement for the situation that you are in. Don't miss that. Because God is continually moving and showing and demonstrating that he is there to bring about encouragement when we are seeking to do his will. On the reverse, we'll just kind of go this direction for a minute. Perhaps if things are hard, perhaps if things are difficult, perhaps if your life is in shambles, lovingly a question is, Lord, how much am I seeking to do your will Versus how much am I seeking to do my own? And lovingly, what I will tell you therein, if you are seeking to do your own will, 
God lovingly will correct you, just like I said before. He will give you a chance to start over, to have a new beginning, a fresh start. When you turn back to him, he will turn to you, and he will give you the strength that you need to persevere. But also, if you are seeking to do his will, if you're sitting there saying, God, I'm doing everything I can to honor you, I'm doing everything I can to bring glory to your name. And it is hard, and it hurts, and it's challenging. Look for those moments where God brings about encouragement to you through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through another believer, through someone coming forward and saying, you know what, thank you for what's going on, or God really spoke to me here, and this is what I want to share with you. And don't overlook that. The people of God are moving forward. Haggai, Zechariah are there. And they're encouraging the people of God to continue to do the work. But interestingly enough, again, think about this. As much as God will bring about encouragement and support when we're seeking to do His will, we turn to the next verse, verse 3. And yet, what we see in this point is the world will continue to question and pressure us as we seek to exalt our Savior. Friends, lovingly, what I want to tell you is the moment that God encourages, you need to be prepared that right behind it, the enemy is going to come and try to discourage. That's just how he works. That's just who he is. That's just what he likes to do. How many of you have experienced a very great spiritual high for Jesus? Nobody? Okay. We get to the mountaintop, right? Reflect back. How long did the mountaintop last? And then look back after the mountaintop. What usually comes after that? The valley. But there are other mountaintops, aren't there? Friends, what I want to tell you is this. The walk that we're called to walk is not on the mountaintops with God. Should we be lucky enough, fortunate enough to experience mountaintops with him? Praise God for it. But a lot of times where the Christian faith is walked out, it's in the mundane valleys of life where we are enduring opposition or persevering in the race. Christian faith is a marathon. It is something that is extended. It is something that we are called to endure and yet, there is great joy in the journey as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, we see that these prophets come forward and they encourage the people of God and the work continues. But then right at verse 3, at that time, at that time, don't miss this, at that time, the moment that we see Haggai and Zechariah bringing about encouragement and telling the people of, to move forward. Right at that time, Tatnai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates. So a big group of people went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this structure? Oh, and by the way, give us the names of the people who are doing this. That's going to become important in just a minute. What I want to tell you is, is God will definitely bring about encouragement and support when you are seeking to do his will. Hold on to those. 
Rejoice in those. Praise God for it. But lovingly, friends, what I want to tell you is nine times out of ten, the moment that you have that, the next day, the next week, the next month, the enemy is going to come forward and try to discourage or try to challenge or bring about greater opposition. What I want to tell you is this. Rejoice in that fact. I know it sounds crazy. Woohoo! We get opposition. I can't wait. I'm so excited for it. Friends, that's the very clue that what you are doing is honoring God and building for his kingdom. It's not easy, but you want to mark that you're working for God's kingdom. The mark often comes when you're experiencing opposition for the work that you're doing. And so this Tatnai and Shethar Bozani and their associates come up with two very pointed questions. Who authorized you to rebuild the structure? And also, we want to know, what are the names of the men? Give us the names of the people who are rebuilding this. This is going to become important. It's one thing, right, to have the people of God rebuilding a structure. It's a whole other thing to have your name individually listed. Division, strife, and separation. Think about this for a minute. We're going to see the response of the people of God that I think is so wise in a minute. The world will continue to question and pressure us as we seek to exalt our Savior. Ah, but then watch this. Verse 5. But. I've always said this before, you always laugh. Don't ever forget why a but is in the Bible. Okay? It's important. It's transitional. It's upward. It's downward. But. It's steering us to another point. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders and Jews. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply received. It's obvious right here that they are working and they are doing what they can to honor God. And it is obvious that by honoring God, they are experiencing increased opposition. God's brought about the prophets to lead, guide, and direct and encourage. But also, the eye of God is upon them. Friends, God is always with you. God is always there. God is always walking with you, encouraging you to move forward. And that's what I want to show you in this next point, is that we must remember that God's eye is upon those who trust and remain faithful to him. Friends, when you trust and remain faithful to God, God's eye is on you. God is always looking, leading, guiding, and directing. I want to ask a question. How many of you feel that way sometimes? God, are you looking? Do you see? Do you know the hurts that we're going through? Do you understand the challenges that are before us? Do you understand the areas that I'm struggling? Whatever that might be. Father, trying to remain faithful to you. And in so doing, now I'm experiencing opposition. It might be with friends at school. It might be at work. It might be in the workplace. It might be with family. It might be with relatives. It might be with close friends. 
But know that God's eye is upon you when you are seeking to do his will. And he will accomplish what it is that he wants to through you when you trust and remain faithful to him. Friends, we look and we see. And then also, notice this. God's eye is upon them. And then we go to verse 6. This is the copy of the letter of the Tetanai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates, the officials of the trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent to him read as follows. This is an ebb and flow. This is encouragement and challenge. This is God being present through it, but also recognizing that as the people of God walk with God, the world will continue to try to oppose and discourage. And so what we see again in verses 6 through 10, as much as we know that God is there, we know God's eye is upon us, the enemy will seek to bring division or separation among members of the church. This is very well written on both sides. And don't miss the fact of the questioning that these individuals are asking. Two very pointed questions. First, King, we want you to know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, and the people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers on the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. Very positive. But then we question the elders and ask them, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and restore the structure? And then we also ask their names. Purpose. So we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. Don't miss that clue. Why do you think they want the names of the leaders? Because it's hard to divide a group. It's a whole lot easier to isolate a couple of the leaders and to go to them and put pressure on them. And when the leaders fall, what? The church falls. The enemy will try to do that all of the time. He will try to come in. He will try to find certain individuals to what? Mark them out. Put pressure on them. Challenge them. Remove them. Discourage them. Distort them. Isolate them or divide them. And friends, that's what the enemy does. What he does, as we know in Scripture, is what? He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking and waiting for what? The whole group to destroy? No. One. And if he gets one, then he'll get another. It's interesting, um, in this analogy, one of the things that I'll tell you when I was... Uh, out in Wyoming, one of the kind of the dangers that we had to be aware of was this. How many of you have ever been or heard coyotes when they're hunting? What do coyotes do? Anybody recognize this? What they do is they send one. They send one to the prey to what? Befriend it. They befriend the animal. Come play with me. Come over here. 
let's hang out together, and what? The rest of the pack is waiting, and they pounce, and that's how they do it. Friends, oftentimes what the enemy wants to do is just to pull and divide, waiting to where he can pounce. But here's the thing. He can't pounce when what? The church stands unified together. And that's what we're going to see in a moment in the response that essentially the people of God give back to the inquiry. Friends, we have to remember that God's eye is upon us and on those who trust and remain faithful to him. But the enemy is going to seek to bring division or separation among members of the church. So how do we respond? How do we persevere? Again, remember that God will bring about encouragement and support when you're seeking to do his will. Recognize that God's eye is upon you as you seek to do the work of the kingdom. But also... And this is what we see in these final verses. We are to trust God, continue to speak the truth in love, and allow the Lord to be our advocate. Let him do the work. Let him be the one that fights for us. If we look, how do they respond? This is the answer that they gave us. Okay, here are the leaders. It's Trevor. And then after that, it's Keith. And then after that, it's the names of the elders. And here's the list. And here's their phone numbers. Go to them first. And if you have issue with that, take them and put it on them. No. We, collectively, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Bold statement. Friends, how many of you would boldly collectively go out when opposed with some form of a letter of opposition that you most likely know will bring about challenge? Would turn and trust God and honor him and say, no, collectively we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We believe in him. We believe in the Bible. And we stand on his word. Don't miss this. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. One that the great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. This is great. Right here is the whole reason. If you ever want to know why the book of Ezra is happening, why First and Second Chronicles are going, you can literally read the summary right here. We messed up. <laughs> we had the temple, we had a great king, and you know what? We messed up. Friends, can I ask one thing? How many of you are transparent enough to go before God or go before other people and say, you know what, I messed up? They're completely transparent. We messed up. And because of that, this is what occurred. Verse 12, because our fathers angered the God of heaven, and handed, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed his temple and deported the people to Babylon. Right there, that's the story of what's going on. However, as we are learning, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed... Uh, 
from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles to the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought up to the temple in Babylon. Full transparency. They're not hiding anything. They're not writing with something in mind. They're not looking and saying, well, gosh, maybe we need to do this or maybe we need to do that. Let's have a little bit of God and a whole lot of our own fruition, our own power, our own intellect. Or don't tell that story. Let's make something else up that would sound better because you know what? It doesn't appear to be working. This is what happened. This is why. Complete trust. Complete faith. Complete transparency. We get into... uh, I think it's uh, 14, like right in around 15, then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he appointed the governor. And he told them, take these articles and go up and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem. Rebuild the house on its site. So this Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to present, it has been under construction and it's not yet finished. P.S., by the way, here's a nice big bribe so that you will favor us. P.S. You are the greatest king in the world. We love you. We're here to serve you. You are our king, whatever we might do. However we can help you, Darius, just let us know. But P.S., by the way, help us out here. Under the table. What's the response? It's up to you. This is the truth. This is what God has told us to do. We're following what God has said. We are honoring him with what we've been called to do. And now it's in your hands. If it pleases the king, let a search be made. Go ahead. Think about this for a minute. If it pleases you, it doesn't have to please you. You don't have to do this. This is up to you. If it pleases you, let a search be made. Okay, great, it pleases the king. Now let's search, knowing that there's opposition. Will it be found? Will this decree actually come forward? Will they recognize and see? Will God honor us? Or will someone hide the decree, steal it, rob it, rewrite it to where it's now at our disadvantage? What if we're called liars? What if they come out and they realize that yes, there is a decree by Cyrus, but the decree has been rewritten and it actually says that Cyrus said, kill all of God's people. What if? So maybe we should do something here. Maybe we should take control because it doesn't look like God is doing what he should. Let's take it into our hands and put a little bit in our effort to where hopefully, because God's not doing what we think he should, he will actually favor us. How often do we do that, friends? How often do we go forward and say, you know what, God, go ahead and do this, but just in case, let me put a little bit under the table because I trust you, but... Friends, we're to trust God, continue to speak the truth in love, and allow the Lord to be our advocate. I want to show you a couple of things that this response is so important and impactful in. The people of God had the opportunity to respond. They had the opportunity to respond however they wanted. They had an opportunity 
to call out the names of the leaders, to put it on them, and to say, you know what, not our problem, go get them, leave us alone. But what do they do? No, they become unified and they say, we, we collectively are building the temple for the God of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, make no bones about it. This is what we're doing. And so what I want you to see, particularly in sort of the makeup of this letter, is the following. With respect to the inquiry about the rebuilding of the temple, the people of God made four truthful claims. Very valid. Very correct. Number one, they claimed the religious right to rebuild by giving strong testimony for God. Verse 11a. We are rebuilding this temple for the God of heaven and earth. We are building the church for Jesus Christ. They're honoring that. They're straightforward with it. They're letting everybody know, this is why. They also then claimed citizens' right to rebuild the temple as it had been previously constructed from, uh, by their former king of Israel. Not only are we building this for God, but we're also letting you know that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was another king who built this temple who we messed up. We were sent into exile and we're returning now under the following decree. So not only do we have a religious right, but we have a citizen's right. This ground we are citizens of. And then they claimed a historical right to rebuild the temple. As years ago, it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, it was ours before Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed it. We're coming back and we're telling you the history of why we're rebuilding this. But we're also being honest in our history. The reason that it was destroyed is because we messed up. And then finally, they're claiming the legal right to rebuild the temple as King Cyrus issued the decree prior to Darius's reign. Cyrus told us to do so. Full honesty, full transparency, full trust in the call of God, full faith in what he will do. Now, stop for a minute. You're rebuilding the temple. You are seeing opposition. You're following Jesus. You're seeing opposition. And you write this letter. And you get ready to put it in the mail. Right? How many of you have done a letter, right, and you're kind of sitting there and you're going, when I drop this in the mail, or quote unquote in email, when I push send, it's done, right? Anybody have a moment where you're kind of like, maybe I should change that? Maybe I should slip a 20 in the envelope <laughs> just in case, right? What do they do? We've told the truth. We believe we're honoring God. We believe we're seeking him. We're trusting in his call. We're looking at what God has told us to do. And off goes the letter. This is what I want to show you. Yet at the end of the day, they place their trust in the Lord to advocate for them. God, here's what's true. And then verse 17, and that's why I love the end of this chapter. Now if it pleases the king... It might not. <laughs> it might not. 
If it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree. Now remember, most likely it's been several years since this decree had been issued. We're probably talking 20 years from the time that the decree was issued to the time here. 15 to 20 years. How many of you are organized enough to make sure that something 15 years ago can be found? Let me ask you another question. How many of you would trust someone else to take care of that thing for you and hope that it would be found? Ultimate trust in God. Not, hey, let us come. Let us come and find it. We're asking you that you would allow us to come and conduct a search. That you would allow us to exhaust our resources. That you would allow us to go through your archives. That we would see, we would watch, we would look, we would know, we would do. No. Darius, if it pleases you, let a search be made in the royal archives. It might not please you. It might. It might please you, and you might say you made a search. You might say you didn't find a thing. You might find something and change what was said. Complete faith and trust in God to advocate and fight for them. Then let the king send his decision to us on the matter. Friends, this is faith, this is trust, this is complete transparency. Because whatever the king decides isn't up to them. I want to ask you a serious question. How many of you would be willing to put your faith and trust in a leader of a government whom you don't fully know and say, you know what, I'm following God, I'm following who he is, and I'm trusting that God has promised that he will advocate for me. That's what the people of God are doing. Heart check. Friends, when you are facing opposition for your faith in Christ, do you trust him enough to be your advocate or do you uh, tend to, to take matters into your own hands? Now, I'm not saying that you just sit there and don't do anything, okay? You move forward. You move forward in faith. But so often when we face opposition, we try to take things and we try to turn them. We try to do them. We try to manipulate them. We try to hold on to them. We try to tell God what to do rather than Trusting what God has already done. Can you hold it with an open hand? Can you say, God, I trust you. Your will be done. <laughs> Your will be be done. I don't know about you, but I praise God that Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands. But he did the will of the Father. 
which was to crush, beat, destroy, and separate him so that we might be reunited to him in faith by the grace and love and mercy of our Savior. Friends, when you face opposition for your faith in Christ, how do you continue to persevere? I want to let you know that God will bring about encouragement and support when we are seeking to do His will. But I also want to be very realistic with you and recognize that the world will continue to question and pressure us as we seek to exalt our Savior. In those moments, remember that the eye of God is upon us as we seek to remain faithful and trusting in Him. But then also know that the enemy will do what he can to bring about division and strife among God's people. And that is where it is most important that we are to trust God, continue to speak the truth in love. This is what we speak. This is what we preach. This is what we proclaim. And allow God to be our advocate. Friends, take home truth. Simply this. We continue to persevere by trusting God, speaking the truth in love, and allowing the Lord to be our advocate. Friends, how many of us are allowing God to advocate for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for the book of Ezra. We thank you for the realness behind it. We thank you for how it has so many fingers across so many books of the Old Testament, but then also how it reaches into the new. Father, we thank you for the challenge that is there. We thank you for the rawness that is there, but we also thank you that behind and through and in the scenes, you are with your people. Father, may that remind us, particularly as we walk in faith in Christ, that at those moments when we are challenged, at those moments when we face opposition, for taking a stand for you, that you will lead, guide, and direct. Father, help us to have a response like the letter that was written. Help us to have one where there's full transparency, where there's one in full trust in you, where there's one in saying, hey, this is what's going on. And then leaving it up to God to be the one who brings about the situation that he desires. Not an easy thing, because as we look, we realize that the response could have been very different to put full trust in God, but then in King Darius, is one where we release our lives over to you. But Father, in that freedom, and in that moment, I wonder often if the people of God, as they waited upon the response, sensed a great peace, and knew that it was well with their soul. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.